So the question is, um, I believe in all of Bhagwan's teaching, but I'm not, I'm sorry, but I'm not very certain about Eka Jeevan because believing in this means that everyone around doesn't really exist. My mother, my sisters, the whole people, uh, um, all the people I know, they do not exist. And only I exist because I'm the only one endowed with awareness, not me as a person, but as an ego that has an awareness. So in short, there is only me, an observer with awareness and nothing and nobody really exists outside. Can you please explain this? Um, <clears throat> well, you partially answer this yourself. You say not me as a person. That is the person we seem to be is as unreal as all the other persons. If we are dreaming, for example, we always in a dream experience ourselves as a person, that is as a body in that dream. But that dream person, that dream body, is no more real than any of the other bodies that we see in the dream. Um, even ego that sees these things is not real. The reason Bhagavan taught us Ekajiva Bada, this is consistent with what he taught us about our present state being a dream. In a dream, there are many people, but there's only one dreamer. Though the people in the dream seem to be seeing the dream, and though the dreamer seems to be a person in the dream, actually the person in the dream is just is not the dreamer. The person we take ourselves to be in the dream is not the dreamer. The dreamer is ego. The person we take ourselves to be is what ego identifies itself with. So we we <clears throat> the the person we see we mistake ourselves to be in the dream is a part of our is a mental creation, a part of the, the dream creation. So but that person is as much dreamt as all the other things of a dreamer dreamt. But dreamer is ego. This teaching, that is, so long as we are looking outwards, all the other people are as real as the person we seem to be. Now, this person we seem to be, Michael is not aware of anything. But because I'm aware of myself as I am Michael, it seems to me that Michael, I, Michael, am aware of all these things because I've conflated myself and Michael as if we are one. <clears throat> so it seems to me that Michael is aware. If Michael is aware, then all the other people are aware. So, so long as we're looking outwards, in effect, there, are, there seem to be many jivas. So for all, for all um, mundane purposes, could say practical purposes, but um, it's better to say mundane purposes because re the real practice is turning within, not this external life. But for mundane purposes, there seem to be many jivas. And there are so many analogies that are given for this, in, even in Advaita. Um, there's one sun in the sky. But if you have many pots of water, you see many reflections. So all the reflections, each of the pots is like a, a jiva. So the, the one sun is reflected in many jivas. So, so many explanations are given for how there seem to be many, though actually there is only one. But 
so why Bhagavan? So long as we're looking outwards, we can go on the assumption that there are many jivas. That's not what. That's not the point Bhagavan is making. Bhagavan's path is not about turning outwards. It's about turning back within. In order to turn back within, it is very helpful to recognize that this whole world is just a dream, and the dream exists only in the view of the dreamer. Who is the dreamer? The one who is seeing the dream. Uh, so we are the dreamer. This dreamer is one. Who is this dreamer? If we if we investigate the dreamer and, and find out what we actually are, we will find that we were never actually the dreamer. What we actually are is pure awareness. So so long as there seems to be, so long as one ego seems to exist, in its view there seem to be many egos. So for for so for the outward looking ego. You can concede, okay, yes, there are many um there are many egos. It would be wrong to think <clears throat> if I if I think as um as solipsism is usually understood, I'm the only person. And therefore I can become very selfish. And other people don't matter because they're all just um they're all um, what in philosophy is called zombies. They, they've got no awareness of their own. I'm the only person who has awareness. Therefore, I'm the only person who, who matters. So I take care of myself and I ignore everyone else. That leads to just an increase of egotism. That is not. That is a misapplication of what Bhagavan is teaching us. The purpose of Ekajiva Vada is to help us when we're turning within, when we're looking outwards, we have to see how kind Bhagavan was to all creatures, to, to, to people, whether they were rich or poor, high caste or low caste, Indian or foreigners, Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists, Jains, uh, Christians, Jews. Bhagavan was equal to all. He didn't see any differences. Uh, even to animals, to, to the monkeys, the dogs, the cows, all creatures he was he showed equal love to, even to the snakes and the scorpions, even to the hornets that stung his 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 uh, thigh. He was so kind to them because he had inadvertently disturbed their home. He allowed them to take his ang their anger out on his thigh. And they stung only his thigh because he just kept quiet and allowed them to, okay, this leg has done the, uh, is the, what is uh, fault, so let this leg, leg take its punishment. So we, we, when we see such kindness in Bhagavan, obviously when we, we need to learn from that. When, so long as we're looking outwards, we need to be kind and considerate to all people because all those people are as real as the person we take ourselves to be. But when we're looking within, we're trying to go beyond this person to see who am I. That is, first thing we in this in this inward journey, first we have to distinguish ourselves from all other things. So we first need drictrisi of Ivika. We need to distinguish the seer from what is seen, the perceiver from what is perceived, the knower from what is known. So, in other words, the subject from all objects. So we are not any object. We are a subject. We are that which knows all objects. So we first have to isolate ourselves as the, as the knower or the seer, the, the, the subject, the, the witness, as it's also sometimes caused. Then why is that necessary? Because we need to investigate ourselves. So long as we take ourselves to be 
any object will be investigating the wrong thing. If I take this body to be Michael, how do I investigate Michael? I can look in a mirror. I can get a doctor to dissect me and uh, see under a microscope and everything. That is not self-investigation. That's just body investigation. I can investigate the mind, all the thoughts and the feelings, and the, I can analyze all these things and that is not self-investigation because these are all objects known by me. I am not an object. I am a subject. So our aim is first to distinguish ourselves from all objects. So first we recognize, this is what's called directricy of Ivica. We are distinguishing the knower from the known. Then we investigate the knower and the knower is ego. When we investigate ego, it subsides and dissolves back into its source because we seem to be ego so long as we're looking outwards. When we look outwards, we identify ourselves as I am this person, and we're consequently aware of so many other things. When we look back within, all these adjuncts drop off and the pure awareness alone remains. So the ultimate truth is that we are not even ego. We're not even the, the witness or the, the knower of all these things. We are the pure awareness that is the reality of ego. <clears throat> So it, it is part of the process of going within, but we need to distinguish ourselves from all other things. All other things are Jada, we are Chaitanya. All other things are changing, we are unchanging. Like this, there are so many ways in, in, in traditional Vedanta, they call these Prakriyas. These, of course, are not the actual investigation. They confuse these Prakriyas with uh, Atma Vichara. The Prakriyas are not Atma Vichara. The Prakriyas are necessary precursors. We need to be able to distinguish ourselves as a subject from all objects. We need to distinguish ourselves as that which is not changing from all that is changing. The mind is changing, but the eye that is aware of the, of the mind is unchanging. In this way, the Prakriyas are to help us to... to identify our lakshya, what we should, well, lakshya means the target, what we, what we should be attending to. So to, in order to help us to, to identify the, 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 our dhyana lakshana, what we should, the target of our meditation, what we should be meditating on, it's only ourselves. So these kriyas are necessary. So part of this process of distinguishing ourselves from other things is recognizing that we all of this is a dream. We have a dreamer. The dreamer is one. There were people in the dream are many. The dreamer is one. So these are all just aids to help us to turn within. So long as you're turning with outside, you you need not try and apply. You don't try. You shouldn't apply. Ekajivavada in, in the day-to-day -day transaction, because it's not applicable in day-to-day -day transaction. It's applicable when we're turning within, trying to distinguish ourselves from all other things. Um, so it's part of the process. But Ekajivavada is also false. It's not the ultimate truth. It's more true than Nana Jivavada, but even that is not the ultimate truth. The ultimate truth is there's no Jiva at all, no ego at all. We, what actually exists, Yatatamai Uladu Apmasarupa Mondre, as Bhagavan says in, in Nana, what actually exists is only Apmasarupa. Apmasarupa means the real nature of ourself. And in um, verse 13 of Uladunapta, for example, he says, Jnana Mam Tane Me. One self who is jnana, pure awareness, alone is real. 
So we, we need all these things to distinguish ourselves from other things in order to turn within. So we, we need to understand the Bhagavad, well, when Bhagavan teaches Ekajiva Vada, we need to understand it in the broader context of his teachings as a whole. And we need to understand how it is to be applied. It is not to be applied in, um, we're not to tell the people, oh, you're all my dream creatures, so you don't matter. I'm the only one who matters because I'm a dreamer. <laughs> that is, the dreamer is there identifying itself with the person in the dream. That is ignorance. That is a, a, a jnana, a vidya. We, we need to distinguish ourselves from this person we, we seem to be by recognizing that we are not anything that is seen. We are the seer. We are the knower. We are the witness. But even the witness is not the final. We need to investigate the witness, and then we find we are just pure, we, pure being, pure awareness. We don't know anything other than ourselves. There's a witness so long as there are things witnessed, but we are beyond the witness. Of course, sometimes Brahman is referred to as witness, but Bhagavan said uh, we need to distinguish in, uh, in the scripture when they talk about, wit about witness, we need to distinguish two senses in which the term witness is used. In one sense, it means that which is knowing everything, that is ego or mind. In the deeper sense, witness means not that which is knowing everything, but that in the presence of which everything uh, appears. So in that sense, Brahman or our real nature is the witness. It's not that our, but Brahman is knowing anything other than itself. There's nothing other than itself for it to know. So but that's why Bhagavan said in the deeper sense in which it's used, uh, uh, Sakshi, with witness, uh, Sakshi means sanadi, he said. But in the in the practical application, we take the witness to be this ego, the one who is aware of all these other things. The drick, the, the knower. And that is what we need to investigate. I, I hope that helps to put this teaching in context. Sure, it does. Thank you, Michael. Uh, the next question is um, In my direct experience, there is no world in deep sleep. And also, in my direct experience, the earth seems to be flat. So why should I trust my direct experience in the first case, but not in the second? Go to the seashore and watch ships re uh, um, receding into the distance. You will see the ship goes to the horizon and then it sinks behind the horizon. Has it fallen off the edge of your flat world? No. Even in Europe, they because it was part of their religious doctrine, but this, they had their own ideas. Up to medieval times, up to the time of um, Copernicus or whoever it was, who first, or before Columbus, they were really believing the world was flat. But in ancient India and other parts of the world, they had understood long, long before that the world is spherical. Because you, you can see very clearly when ships go, how they disappear behind the horizon. If the world was flat, you should see the ship going on into the distance. You should look across the Atlantic Ocean from, from um, 
from anywhere on the west coast of England or Europe, and you can look and see New York and Washington on the other side. You can't because the world is round. So it is. It should be fairly obvious to any observer that the world is round. It doesn't take a genius. In fact, in ancient India, the astronomers and the the, the people have worked out the size of the world. They'd even worked out quite accurately. In ancient texts in India, there are um, texts on, um, on, on these things where they actually identified what is the size of the world by, by measuring the, the, I can't remember exactly how they did it, but they have their own uh, ways of doing it. And they, they managed to very accurately estimate what is the, what is the uh, uh, circumference of the earth. So it, it is false to think, but superficially, the world seems to be flat. But if we observe a bit more closely, it's obviously not flat. But the, in the case of, um, the, the case of, uh, of um, no world appearing in sleep, that is very obvious. And no one is going to say, oh, I was aware of the world in sleep. If you say I was aware of the world in sleep, what does it mean? You weren't asleep. If you're aware of the world, you're not asleep. If you're asleep, you're not aware of the world. But though we are not aware of the world or anything other than ourselves in sleep, we are aware of ourselves because we, 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 when we wake up from sleep, we're able to, we're, we, we clearly remember we were in a state in which we weren't aware of anything. How can we remember having been in that state if we were not aware of being in that state? So in sleep, we're aware of our ourself. We're aware of our being. We're not aware of anything else. Since we're aware of our being, if the world is also existing at that time, why are we not aware of the world? So we can, it's it, very reasonable to uh, infer that the world doesn't exist in sleep. But the world is just an appearance. It's something that... It, we can say the world exists only when it seems to exist. But even when it seems to exist, it doesn't actually exist. But about the, round, the, the spherical nature of the world, that is uh, a little careful observation will reveal that fact. As I say, just go to the seashore and watch a ship receding into a distance. It goes up to the horizon and then it slowly disappears behind the horizon. That anyone can observe. The next question is, um, when I think of my death, then unlike Bhagwan's experience, I feel that I will die. Is it because my identity with the body is too strong? Yes. That is, when, the, when fear of death comes to us, to, to, to the majority of people, when the fear of death comes, the mind rushes outwards, tries, tries to hold on to the things that it considers precious. For example, it is said that when, people, when a person is drowning, but they're, they're, the major events of their life or their major memories, places they lived or um, people they knew, all those flash before their eyes. That shows that the mind is going outwards, grasping these things, grasping these, these memories, because it doesn't want to let go. But in the case of Bhagavan, he wasn't concerned about his life as Venkataraman. He wanted to know, okay, this body is going to die. When this body dies, then Venkataraman is finished. 
Uh, there's no more things to run. So when this body dies, do I also die? Because he was, he, he was interested only in knowing whether he dies when the body dies, his attention turned within to find out who am I. Because we're more concerned about other things, but we, with which we, why are we more concerned about other things? Because of our false identification. If I am Michael, then when I die, I'm going to be separated from all my loved ones and all my property and my social status and my, all my bank account and whatever, whatever I've accumulated, all the knowledge I've acquired in this life, all my learning. I'm going to be separated from all these things. So I don't want to let go of these things. So my mind goes outwards holding on to them. So this, this is the difference between a mature and an immature mind. That's why in verse in the second Mangalam verse of Uludunapadu, Bhagavan says, Maranabhayamikku ammakal. That word ammakal, that am, superficially we can take it as a, as, a, um, as a demonstrative suffix, meaning those people, but it actually has a deeper meaning. Am also means beautiful. In the beautiful people he's referring to are people with the beauty of spiritual maturity. In other words, the pure-hearted, uh, those with, with, who, whose minds have been purified. That's what Bhagavan describes as beautiful people or pure, uh, 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 mature people. We can we take it day spiritually mature. So when they get the when Maranabhaya Mikku Ammakal, when the, the uh, mature souls who have intense fear of death, take refuge in the, in the fortress of the feet of Mahesan. By their surrender, they have died. Can the thought of death occur to them again? So he's talking there about that that is the difference between a spiritually mature person and a, and a spiritually immature person. When fear of death comes to us, where does our mind go and take refuge? It doesn't go within to take refuge in the feet of Mahesan. It goes outwards to take refuge in all our memories and our attachments and everything. Because even now, what are we? We are not surrendered to Bhagavan. We are surrendered to our desires and attachments to our identity as this person. So until we are ready to surrender ourselves wholly to Bhagavan, we will not take refuge in his feet. That is why this practice of Atmavichara is necessary, because only by the more we turn within, the more we will become willing to let go of other things and to take refuge in his feet. His feet is I am, that which is shining in our heart as I am. I hope that adequately answers that question. Uh, can, I, can I add something? Yes. How I don't see how... I can be without a body, you know, I, I, that is the whole purpose of what Bhagavan is, is teaching us. That is, it's only by the practice of self-investigation, but we can become, now we are so, so intimately, so closely identified with this body, we, we find it hard to conceive our existence in the absence of the body. But, that's why people, when, they, when they're told that they're aware in sleep, they say, oh, no, I wasn't aware of anything in sleep, because they, they are wholly identified with the mind and with awareness of other things. But the more we turn within, the more we practice 
our this self-investigation, the clearer we the more clearly we will become aware of our existence as something other than this person we seem to be. I am not this body. What am I? I am I. We are identify our identification, which is now latched onto this body begins to latch on to I alone. The more we go deep in this self-investigation, the clearer it will become to us that we exist very clearly in sleep, in the absence of the body, and in the absence of world, in the absence of everything. So it's all a matter of abhyasa, or practice. The deeper we go in the practice, the clearer it will become to us that we do exist independent of the body. If you think about it, if you think about your experience in sleep, we, at least we can have some inkling. Yes. Do you doubt that you existed in sleep? I don't think anyone can seriously say, oh, no, I don't think I existed in sleep. Well, some philosophers say we're as good as non-existent in sleep, but they're not thinking deeply enough. If we actually think about it, who slept? I slept. So we were there in sleep but nothing else was there. So we are aware of our existence in sleep. Since we're aware of our existence in sleep, we're aware of having been in a state where we were without this body. So we are clearly something distinct from this body. That's why this, um, this uh, Avastra Treya uh, um, uh, analysis is, is required. That, that's one of the... the, the preliminaries to help us to understand what it is we are to investigate. And that's why we have this sense of continuity between sleep and waking state? Yes. The only thing that continues is I am. Because yes. everything else, ego and everything else, ceases to exist in sleep. Yes, yes, yes. But, but still... Ego is not other than I am. That is, ego is the false awareness. I am this body. I am Marie. I am Michael. So that, that I am is what continues through all the three states. Marie or Michael is just a temporary appearance. Yes. Yes, and it feels even if in dream it's like a different body, it's still the same. I don't know. It's still the yeah, same. We, as we still thing. identify ourselves as a, the same person. The reason for that is the dreams we have at night are dreams that occur within this dream. So the whole of our present life is a dream. So those are dreams within a dream. When this dream comes to an end, then the, our identification will be completely, we'll, we'll no longer be aware of ourselves as I am Marie or I'm Michael or I'm whoever. We, when the next dream starts, we'll, we'll, there'll be a completely new identity. That's why uh, the memories are all lost. <clears throat> Maybe some yogis or by hypnotherapy, you can sometimes recover some, I mean, people do sometimes have memories of past life, but as a general rule, we forget everything about our past lives because our identity changes. But the one who is identifying, the ego who's identifying is the same ego, but the identity has changed. Whereas in dream in this way, in, in, the, in the, the dreams that occur in the life of the person we seem to be now are dreams within a dream. So we have, still have the same identity. When you're, when you're dreaming, you don't dream yourself as being any person other than Marie. 
Things may, the circumstances in your dream world may be very different to the circumstances in this world, but you're still uh, are aware of yourself as if you're the same person. Yes, but sometimes, like, I dream I'm a man, for example. Like, it's, it's, it's odd. Yeah, well, okay, that can, ha that can happen, that can happen, but as a general rule, but who is dreaming that they are uh, a man? It's Murray who's dreaming, but there's still that identity is there. Yes, yes, the fundamental yeah. me is the same, yeah. even if the forms are different. Or... Yes, yes. Yes, okay. Uh, that is in dream, for example, we have so many memories. Because we in dream, we remember our waking state. Sometimes we get a bit, our memories get a bit confused in dream. But as a general rule, we, re we remember our waking state. So we remember who we are. We remember who our parents are. We recognize people we meet in a dream. Uh, oh, I haven't met you for so many years. Um, we may even meet someone who passed away so many years ago. So the memories are still there. So that means we still have the same basic identity. So even if you're dreaming you're a man, you will still be, have memories from this life. Yes, 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 yes. Yes, the dream is not so different. Like, it's not hard to conceive. But, uh, yeah, the sleeping state is, um, deep sleep is, is very more deep. Like. It's much deeper. But it will become more clear to the extent that we practice self-investigation. But deeper we go in our self-investigation, the more blindingly obvious it will be, but sleep is a state of awareness. Yes. Pure awareness. And, and when you said that um, um, we're, um, we're like in a prison, you know, when uh, in this verse, um, yes. it's, it's, I don't understand because if, if, if it was the case, it would be easier to be in a prison, to be forcefully in, in I am, but it feels that there's this sort of freedom to go outside and, and that to go within is like a choice. Yes, because it, but that is, it is the nature of the ego to go outside. So ego is always thinking about things other than itself. It's always thinking about past and future. We never actually come to the precise present moment because we're always anticipating what's coming next or what happened in the past. So we, we, to be in the present, we can be in the present only by being as we actually are. Because what is, what is it that makes the present moment or present place present? It is the presence of ourself. But because our mind is going outwards, we are never attending to our own presence, to our own being. We're attending to other things. So we get caught up in the flow of time. So long as we're attending to anything other than ourselves, we, we're, we're in the flow of time. So we're never actually standing in the present. But only if we want to stand in the present, we have to turn within. But why does Bhagavan talk about a prison like? being forcefully there oh prison 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 yes. i thought you said present oh prison now we are imprisoned imprisoned in this body because we've identified ourselves with this body we have imprisoned ourselves in this body when aranacha's grace takes possession of us he imprisons us in ourselves there 
it, obviously there it's kept as it's a it's a metaphor that is a prisoner is one who can't escape we have an option of escaping from this present state this ego state we can always escape from this ego state by turning within but once we turn within and merge back into our source then there's no escaping because we can never leave ourselves oh it's so beautiful so beautiful Mm. That's why it's a it, that is these verses they they're so beautiful because they, they <clears throat> we can easily understand the surface meaning that is at the grossest level Arunachya came and entered Bhagavan's home in Madurai and pulled him to Tiruvannamalai and fixed him in the cave of his heart I mean in the in the caves of Arunachala and never allowed him to leave that's a grossest level but if we go to a very deeper level this verse has extremely profound meaning Arunachya enters the mind pulls us out of the mind back into the heart and there he keeps us prisoner by by giving us so by giving us so much love for him but but, but our attention is riveted on him we are thereby imprisoned by him well, I, I would I would like Arunachala to do that for me because the part I find difficult is to we, turn we say like, we would like it, but are you ready to pay the price? The price is to give up everything. If you would really like Arunachala to imprison you, he's ever ready to imprison you. It's we who are constantly struggling against his grace by going mm -hmm. outside. Yeah, the problem is this little freedom to go outside. It's causing all the, all these yes. problems. Like but that that's the one thing he never he never denies or he never obstructs is our freedom. Why? Because freedom is our very nature. We are yes. we are the one thing that actually exists. So there's nothing other than ourselves to restrict our freedom. We have seemingly limited our freedom by limiting ourselves as this body but we 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 can just like we can never cease to be aware because awareness is our very nature we we can never entirely cease to be free because freedom is our very nature but yes. trouble is we are misusing our freedom yes and grace is there to help us to use the freedom correctly so to the extent to which we yield ourselves to grace Grace will guide us to use our freedom correctly. The correct use of freedom is to turn our attention back within and willingly become a prisoner in the cave of his heart. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we can never like, completely be forced to be uh, enlightened or not that word. No, but no. no. In, in the early version of, in the earliest versions of, of Nana, Bhagavan removed this when he wrote it as an essay, one of the questions was, can God and Guru, um, uh, I can't remember exactly how it was worded, something like, can God or Guru fix the devotee in this state? And Bhagavan says no. He removed that because it could easily be misinterpreted. The reason he said no is they will never force it on us. And actually, that God and Guru are doing everything. God and Guru, of course, are one and the same. Bhagavan is doing everything that can be done to help us in this path, but he will never force it on us. We must be willing to surrender ourselves to him. Then he will, then 
he will give us what is already ours. In other words, then when, when we surrender ourselves to him, he will reveal to us, but we are what we are seeking. Yes. And is it because we ourselves have gone out? We ourselves Yes, have- yes. Nobody has forced you to go out. There's not some demonic God who, who has said, <laughs> now you rise as ego. No, it, we have misused our freedom. But if we investigate ourselves and find what we actually are, we will find there was never any misuse of freedom. But so long as we, we seem to be ego, we seem to have misused our freedom. Our rising as ego is a misuse of our freedom. Yes. Thank you. Thank we you. have misused our freedom to put ourselves in bondage. <laughs> It's very stupid. Very stupid. <laughs> okay. The last question is, how do we deal with health problems? How do we deal with health problems, fears, vasanas? Do we just ignore these things because they are outgoing things? Health problems, what was it? How do we deal with health problems, fears, and vasanas? Do we just ignore these things because they are outgoing things? Yes. That is health problems. It's... Uh, Whatever we are to experience is according to prarabdha. So if it's our destiny to experience health problems, we cannot avoid experiencing health problems. The health problems will be there. Um, the uh, fears, fears are, so long as there's desire, there will be fear. If we desire to live in this body, we will fear to die. If we, whatever, if we desire to be rich, we'll fear to lose all our money. If we desire to be very learned, we'll fear to, to, to forget everything that we've learned. So fear and desire always go hand in hand. So long as we have desire for anything, we'll fear either to lose it if we've got it, or we'll fear to not get it. So the fear will always accompany desire. And the seeds that give rise to desires and fears are vasanas. So vasanas are the, are, the, are the underlying problem. But whose vasanas are they? They're my vasanas. So the, the ultimate cause is ego. The, the second level cause of all problems is our vasanas. Because it is the nature, the vasanas are not ego, but it is the nature of ego to have vasanas. Because the nature of ego is to cling to things other than itself. So it has inclinations to cling to things other than itself. Its inclinations to cling to things other than itself are what's called vishaya vasanas. So it is the very nature of ego to have vishaya vasanas. What does it mean ignoring our vishaya vasanas? not allowing ourselves to be swayed by them. How can we avoid being swayed by them? Only by clinging to self-attentiveness. Clinging to self-attentiveness means we are being swayed by satvasana. And the more we are swayed by satvasana, the stronger that becomes, and the weaker all other vasanas, all the vishaya vasanas become. That is, vasanas have no strength of their own. Whatever strength they seem to have is strength we have endowed them with. It's our strength 
but we but we have endowed them with our strength. How do we endow them with our strength? By allowing ourselves to be swayed by them. So supposing I have some vasana, some some particular liking, the more I indulge that liking, the stronger that will become, the more difficult it will be for me to resist it. If I have a liking to eat too much chocolate, for example, if I keep on yielding to that liking and eating more and more chocolate, the more I eat chocolate, the more I indulge in chocolate, the more difficult it becomes to give up that indulgence. So vasanas are strengthened by our allowing ourselves to be swayed by them. The more we allow our mind to go outward, the more the, the share of vasanas are getting strengthened. That's why the solution is to turn the mind back within. By turning the mind back within, the sat vasana is strengthened, but the share of vasanas are weakened. Because to, to the extent to which we are turning within, we are thereby not allowing ourselves to be swayed by the, uh, the, uh, the, the share of vasanas, so they become, grow weaker. 